Okay, uh, thanks for coming. Welcome here. I heard the weather forecast says that most likely there'll be a huge snowstorm during Abby's talk, and we're stuck here for the entire night. So make yourself very comfortable. Can you hear me? Um, no. Okay, well, too bad. Um, so as you heard, there, uh, from the list of speakers who preceded uh, Ivy at this uh, podium, you might not necessarily have guessed uh, from that list that Mr. Van Nuxem, the sponsor of this lecture series, uh, was in the insurance business. He was an insurance uh, specialized in, is in, in uh, insurance law. Now, we too specialize in insurance. Uh, the insurance we give you, uh, that of all the things you could be doing this evening, I guarantee you being here, despite the weather, is the smartest one uh, you could have done. So it does give me great pleasure to introduce to you uh, Ivy Victorson. Now, for me personally, Ivy is first and foremost a dear old friend of mine and my family's. Um, Ivy is a Princeton boy, sort of. Uh, he was born and grew up in Israel, but then he came here uh, to do his PhD, which he got in 1983. Uh, upon graduation, he served a few research stints across the country and then went back to Israel <coughs> to be a professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, then in 1999, the lure of New Jersey proved once again to be irresistible, and Avi came back uh, to this beautiful state to be a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study. He is the Herbert Mass Professor of Mathematics at the Institute. What might have thought that the Mass Professorship should be in physics, but I guess not. It's in <laughs> mathematics. Avi has won many prizes including the highly prestigious Nevin Lina Award in 1994. Uh, to put it simply, and in a way that is both accurate and likely to maximize Ivy's embarrassment, I will say that he's one of the greatest computing theorists alive. A statement made all the more meaningful in view of the fact that most computing theorists are indeed alive, <laughs> <laughs> or, or at least they pretend they are. <laughs> and that is the nice thing about working in such a young field. But besides being an extraordinary researcher uh, whose influence in the field is truly unsurpassed, Avi is also a Renaissance kind of scientist who views science as a whole and tries to get the big picture, which is why um, what he's truly one of the giants of the field. He's also one of the most articulate spokesmen um, of our field. So please join me in welcoming Andy Victorson to this podium. Thank you. Uh, thanks for this uh, wonderful introduction. I uh, certainly will not be funnier than Bernard in this uh, in this lecture. So, uh, first of all, thanks for showing up in this, uh, in this weather. I uh, feel a double responsibility, uh, one for you know, uh, making sure that Bernard's promise on the insurance materializes and also that uh, you get back home safely. Um, so, it's one of a series of three. We'll see what the weather will be like tomorrow and how many people show up. So, we are if it works. So 
We are here at the first uh, talk, and uh, I want to tell you the title of the series is uh, Worldview Through the Computational Lens. So I want to tell you why thinking algorithmically, why thinking computationally is, uh, is good for mathematics, for computer science, for natural sciences, and even beyond. And uh, in this first lecture, I will uh, focus on the algorithm, which is the uh, the object or the language that uh, that connects all these uh, together, and uh, as Bernard, in fact, uh, promises in uh, in a beautiful article that he recently wrote, uh, this is uh, this will be the major player uh, in the scientific field uh, in terms of a construct that will be used as a, as a language that will be used to describe natural phenomena and and more. I, uh, so this uh, will be a basic uh, talk more about the scope of the field and uh, some of the early ideas and uh, why they were so powerful. In fact, the definition of the algorithm and why it was so powerful. Uh, the next two lectures will be more quote-unquote technical. They will not be technical. Nothing will be very expected. Lots of undergraduates which from non-computer science uh, departments. So uh, they will not be really technical, but will be more, let's say, recent. And uh, the second will uh, focus on computational complexity, what happens when algorithms are restricted in space or time. And uh, you'll see, as the title suggests, that uh, it, it brings a picture of uh, uh, the sky, more or less, because, you know, the universe and only the stars in this uh, picture are computational problems, and we... We see wonderful formations there. And the last uh, lecture will be on cryptography, on the art and science of uh, hiding things from others and uh, securing, uh, securing the internet, electronic commerce, and more. I'll say more about it at the end, uh, but that's the plan of the talk. And as usual, uh, I will be able to touch only on a few things. If you are really interested in this field, you should go and take the wonderful courses offered here, for example, at the university. And uh, uh, the other thing is, of course, I'll, I'll generalize, I'll simplify, oversimplify, I'll cheat whenever I can, so things will be accessible. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so uh, let me start and uh, say, so I looked at the list of all speakers in this uh, series and in general uh, public lectures here at the university, and uh, it seems that... Uh, both kinds of people are, are rarely invited. I'm not sure why, but uh, there are lots of humanities and lots of uh, natural sciences, I think mainly because uh, they, they maybe find it easier to give popular lectures. Um, anyway, our field, theory of computation, the field I, I represent is in the, in the middle of mathematics, uh, in the intersection of mathematics and uh, computer science in that... Uh, our mode of operation is that of a mathematician. We normally prove theorems in this field, but the object of study is computation. So we are trying to understand the meaning or the mathematics of, uh, of computation. So computing is far from being only about computers, and in fact, uh, there is a large intersection with this big circle of natural sciences and some of the social sciences that... Uh, is, is relevant uh, to our work, our applications to our work, and things we want to understand that are 
lying in there, and I'll just demonstrate it in the uh, next few minutes. So um, let me start with uh, some kind of uh, uh, survey for you. Uh, this intelligence is not the main topic of this talk at, at all, uh, but well, I'm sure many of you recognize this uh, picture. I want to talk about intelligence for a minute, and then we'll talk about it for a minute at the end. Um, this is the faceplate of the Voyager, this spaceship that we sent out beyond the solar system. And uh, I think actually that Carl Sagan designed this, if I'm not mistaken, but I often wondered why, I mean, why we put this on the, on the spaceship. I mean, do you know? I mean, so I think, I, I, I thought that if aliens were to observe the spaceship, they'd probably more, be more impressed with the spaceship than with this, but uh, I think that it does say something about uh, the fact that when we, we, we are looking for intelligence or where we are want to present ourselves as intelligent, patterns play a big role. I mean, the you know, patterns that may be recognizable by others as impressive. So I want to look at uh, other patterns and uh, do the following uh, survey here. I just want to, so I mean, you recognize, of course, uh, the left and uh, the right, those of you who don't recognize, the typical termite mound. So this is built by Termite, not this guy, he's just here for scale. Uh, uh, this was built by Termites, and the question is uh, when we compare these two structures and actually compare the size of the brains and also the physical size maybe of the creatures that built it, I, it's not clear what would be more impressive, certainly what would be more impressive to an alien. Uh, do you think that this, let me, whoever thinks that this shows that termites are intelligence, can you raise your hand? Nobody. Okay. So, I mean, I think, it's not clear why. I think we are really biased when we talk about intelligence because I think we think uh, we are the supreme species here on the planet. And, and then we can immediately say, yeah, of course, the Egyptians did this, but they also did this. I mean, they, they knew the primes, right? So they could have engrave the primes and then, you know, what would the termites answer with? So, so suppose you saw this on the mound of the termites. Let's assume you found such a mound. Would you say the termites are intelligent? How many? Raise your hand. Okay, good. A fair. Good. <laughs> okay, so, um, good. So let's leave it. Here's the plan of the, the lecture. Uh, I first want to talk about uh, how broadly we, we view computation, what we, what we want to call computation in the sense that we want to study. And then I want to get into uh, defining uh, algorithms. So it will be easier first to talk about mathematical problems. And uh, I'll talk about algorithms in mathematics. And then leading to understanding and demonstrating the Turing machine, which is a mathematical depiction, uh, definition of, a, of an algorithm. And I'll talk a lot about Turing and his, his work on this. And uh, in particular, and talk about several consequences of this, uh, some of which you are aware of. Uh, but in particular, about how it gives, uh, shows limits on 
what we can understand or know about basic problems in mathematics and computer science. And then I move to uh, problems in, uh, to algorithms in nature and uh, talk about another model, uh, the von Neumann cellular automata, and uh, talk about, again, how this understanding, this uh, formally, having a formal model like this, like in the Turing machine case, uh, shows limits on what we can know about basic scientific questions. So it's a, it's a heavy load. Uh, by the way, I, I think the, this, this feels intimate enough. If you need to stop me, just raise your hand. Okay, so uh, I want to start with just a, a bunch of uh, examples of uh, natural phenomena and uh, intellectual challenges. I think uh, in most of them you'll agree that they are such uh, that we'd like to understand or like to perform. And all of them have an essential computational component. So uh, I decided to start from the most ridiculous thing I can uh, think of. I want to say that computation is everything in which there is a before and after, in which there is a, some gap that we try to fill in with understanding. And of course, when you have before and after, you turn on the, you know, the paper or Google and you get something like this. So here there's a, a process. I mean, in this case, that's what they promise you, this process that uh, we'd like to understand. And uh, uh, it's very important to understand everything that comes into the process. Uh, and I think in this case, what the newspaper shows is not everything. There may be some other. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, we want to get whatever uh, comes in, and we want to understand once it's there, how you know, it happens that we, you know, he's smiling at the end. So, uh, maybe this is too complex and I promise to simplify, so maybe we should look at this process, which is, uh, requires no <laughs> cash, I think. Uh, but I want to say that, uh, of course, that this uh, process is gradual, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's an evolution, uh, and we want to understand the laws governing this evolution in whatever detail, and we want to understand this in exactly the same way, or in at least exactly the same language as we understand something that's extremely familiar, which also happens by an, uh, an evolution, a small evolution, uh, on uh, when we are adding large numbers, for example. So again, there is a process which manipulates these numbers and results in this output, which is the sum of both of them. Uh, and when we are studying this kind of, okay, so we want to understand what goes, goes on here in detail and look for the language to capture it, and uh, there are many questions we should ask ourselves about this. Here are some of them. Uh, what is being computed? So first of all, what's, you know, what is the relationship between before and after? What is the function that connects the input and the output to this process? Uh, what are the possible inputs? We are usually not interested in what happens to this particular guy, right? Or to this particular pair of numbers. We want to understand what happens, for example, to this guy, or what, uh, what happens, how do we add these two numbers, or any possible numbers, or any possible uh, person. So we want to understand a collection, usually an infinite collection of uh, possible inputs to the process, and want to know what happens to them. So we are looking for a language to describe this process, want to know what we are manipulating. Maybe in this case, it's obvious, it's the digits. In this case, maybe it's cells in the body or 
something like this. And uh, uh, there are many other issues that come up, of course, and we won't touch on all of them, but that's, uh, that's an example uh, why, I mean, just why these two things that look very different are, in fact, connected. And I want to give you lots more examples from different realms of science, mathematics. Uh, so these are, again, uh, examples of natural phenomena, and uh, which, which obviously not only do we want to understand, they are both well-studied uh, for, for many, many years. We understand them to some extent. We don't fully understand them. And uh, what I want to stress about theories, about the laws that we are looking for that will explain these uh, phenomena is that uh, these theories, I think all theories that we are looking for, natural theories, are theories that should be predictive. So, you know, maybe, you know, something is described by differential equations or by some, uh, uh, you know, linguistic theory or something like this. But at the end, when we have a theory, we would like to apply it. An application of a theory usually is in prediction. Namely, we want to know uh, if we are in this state, what will happen in two months? Or we, if this is the weather now, what will happen in two hours? Right? That's what we use the, the theories usually for, and that's uh, one good measure of, uh, of a good theory. It's, it's the ability via computation, obviously. I mean, we are just trying to simulate what nature is actually doing by itself somehow. So uh, that's, that's where the computational aspects uh, comes in, even though what's manipulated here is again maybe uh, cells, uh, maybe it's a cell differentiation process, and maybe here it's you know uh, the values of uh, you know pressure and temperature and so on in various places. We want to see how they evolve. Nevertheless, we want a process that will we can you know compute, predict what will happen in you know sometime in the future. Uh, it's another example where, where I would like to understand the process of uh, evolution. This is uh, an epidemic, and we can try to understand it in, in very different scales. This is, you know, uh, of course, the famous SARS epidemic. Here's what, uh, which people were infected, what fraction of people were infected around the globe, and uh, that's the same 20 days later. Of course, you, you hear enough about it in the news for me to tell you about how, uh, you know, essential it is to understand the propagation of uh, an epidemic like this. And we may want to understand exactly the same epidemic in the cell level, what happens when the virus infects a particular cell and how the uh, virus multiplies there and so on. And uh, a basic question that we'll, we'll get to at the end again is uh, even if we know completely the, the physical laws governing uh, an infection like this, uh, an epidemic like this, well, is it going to stop or is it going to, you know, kill everyone or kill the whole body? So we'll, we'll talk about problems like this, but certainly it's a basic question that we'd like to understand. Uh, here's a completely different uh, type of, in fact, two different problems. Uh, one is, well, both in mathematics, one is the problem of solving equations, and, you know, it's, it's higher level than just adding numbers, we are given an equation like to come up, let's say, with integer solutions and like maybe to have a process like with addition that will solve all these kind of uh, questions. And similarly, we may get a statement like this uh, and uh, try to prove that it's true and try to prove it, well, Wiles did it for this 
so-called Fermat's last theorem, and uh, uh, I had no room to put the <laughs> proof here, but uh, we'd like to be able to do it for maybe all possible correct theorems. So can we automate this process? Is there a way to, uh, to just replace a mathematician by a machine? Does it need to be creative? You can go into philosophy here and so on. But anyway, these are, again, uh, definite clear input-output pairs connected by a clear function. And, you know, can we understand the process between them? Here's some more. Uh, these are uh, brain functions that, uh, again, people are working on. And uh, uh, I think, well, this is very far uh, in the future. I think we have no clue about emotions. Uh, recognition or the ability to somehow recognize uh, or bring from thousands different images uh, one of them that just appropriate or maybe not so appropriate uh, uh, is, is uh, another process that we'd like to understand and uh, I, I <laughs> Penrose was here before me so I don't know if you read his books uh, I disagree with him uh, finally, I don't know how many people consider these natural processes. Uh, I think that, uh, of course, everybody knows that they are man-made, but I think that uh, if someone was to discover a gadget that, uh, where you, you type a few words uh, from billions and billions of possibilities and uh, you click a button and you get exactly what you looked for, or similarly you type locations anywhere in the world and a click and in a split second you get the shortest route between them and well I think you, you may think that you found uh, some magical box and uh, also these processes well of course we'd like to understand them because we'd like to design them and uh, if you are ambitious you can try to actually beat them and uh, you know make millions or billions like they did so it's not clear that the way they the understanding a, a process is, uh, is, uh, is sort of a never-ending uh, story. You may want to understand it better. Okay, so that was just a, a list of examples of various things that I want to put under the cover of computation. Now I want to try to talk about the language to describe it, namely the algorithms. And uh, algorithms in mathematics are simpler because the function, the relation between the input and the output are, is usually very clear. And I want to take this example because, uh, because everyone's familiar with it and uh, maybe hates it, but uh, that's also the example that sort of motivated Turing. So we'll talk quite a bit about addition, even though you all know how to do it. Uh, so what is this process when they teach us in uh, first or second grade? This process is, uh, you know, is uh, something that the following can be said about it. We'll try to make this more and more formal, this notion, intuitive notion of, of an algorithm to do addition. It's a, it's a sim simple sort of step-by-step -step mechanical procedure that will compute the function for us and will do it no matter what the input is in this case, no matter what the two numbers are. And uh, before I get to, to this, I felt that, uh, you know, always in this kind of uh, uh, 
broad lectures, you should give some historical perspective. Only if I went really seriously into history, this would be a, just a semester course on the history. So I decided to do it in millennia scale, one person every thousand years. So I, I picked this, uh, these three people, uh, uh, Euclid from uh, 2300 years ago, um, were in the connection, mainly because of the connection between mathematical proofs and algorithms. Then al Khwarizmi about a little over a thousand years ago, uh, because he contributed his name, algorithm is his name, and I'll tell you why we picked him. Oh, he was picked, and uh, finally the hero of the evening is uh, Alan Turing. So here are the short CVs of these guys. Uh, Euclid, they are all fathers. Euclid is known as the father of geometry, always portrayed with a compass in his hand. Of course, we don't know how he looked like, but uh, um, he uh, worked at the, at the Library of Alexandria. I, I, I had this tongue slip. I said university, but I really meant it. So Library of Alexandria was not just a library. It was much more than that. It was, uh, it, it was housed to a large number of scholars that did a lot of, you know, scholarship in, in lots of uh, uh, areas, and in fact, all scientific areas uh, and uh, humanities that uh, existed at the time. And uh, moreover, it was, I, I, I read that recent, recently that uh, uh, they discovered something like uh, 13 what would be lecture halls and they, that could house about 5,000 students. So it was a regular, must have been a regular university. Uh, and uh, Euclid, he was Greek, but he worked there. And uh, well, perhaps the thing he's most famous for is the, the elements. It's the book. It's actually 13 volumes of a book, mainly on ge geometry and some on number theory. And it's, it's actually amazing in the history of mathematics what the power of a book is. And uh, maybe today is not so much so felt. But this was, for centuries, the uh, most uh, you know, popular math book, and moreover, it is uh, it's really the, uh, I don't know, the Bible, or the, the, the book that codified the way we do mathematics. So the way mathematicians work did not change since then, and it's codified. That's the first text in which it's explained. And what's explained there is the deductive method, the way uh, you proceed from very few simple completely obvious axioms into a proof of a mathematical theorem, sometimes far from obvious. But this step-by-step -step deduction is what uh, Euclid explained again and again by you know, elaborating on all the geometric theorems they had at the time. And uh, I emphasize this step-by-step -step because it's the same step-by-step -step you see with when we define algorithms. Uh, he did more, he did a lot more, but in particular he devised algorithms, or at least, I'm really not sure he invented this one, but he definitely, uh, there are a lot of algorithms described in his books, and that's a, a very simple one, that's one to find the greatest common divisor of, the, uh, of two integers, the number, the, the largest number dividing both these numbers, and I just, you'll see lots of these in the lectures, these are just uh, sort of pseudocode of an algorithm. That's a description of the procedure that, that uh, finds this uh, greatest common divisor. I'll not explain it, I just want to show you how short and elegant it is. That's uh, 
the main thing and, and quite formal, even though he didn't uh, write it in this language. And uh, as I said, it's no accident that uh, um, this step-by-step -step progress uh, appears in both uh, proof and algorithm. This is the, the, the thing that ties them together. And indeed, mathematicians through the ages were very interested in algorithms, not just in proofs uh, for various uh, mathematical problems. Okay, so that's uh, Euclid. Let me tell you about Al-Kharizmi. Uh, he's known as the father of algebra, maybe with Diophantos, but he's uh, certainly... Uh, being called that, and uh, why is he here? So, first of all, we don't know exactly when he was born or when he died, but we definitely know that he worked in this wonderful place, right? I mean, what better place to work <laughs> than the house of wisdom? Uh, this is Baghdad in the ninth century. It was a very different place. Uh, and uh, the sultan of the time uh, created uh, this house of wisdom again, maybe the first institute for advanced study, uh, a collection of scholars that uh, could do whatever they liked. And, and uh, like him, ma uh, many others were, you know, do it all. Uh, he had, had the best maps of the world of the time. His astronomical tables had uh, amazing accuracy for for the period, but for us it's important for these two books that he wrote, uh, basically one in algebra on solving equations and one in arithmetic in, in just uh, doing, doing arithmetic. Uh, and in these two books he describes algorithms in the sense that, at least uh, since we will try to formalize completely, but in the intuitive sense we meant for uh, doing the, for example, the arithmetic operations for solving linear and quadratic equations in step-by-step -step procedures that can handle any input. And uh, when these books were translated to Latin, his Latin name was Algorithmi, and that's what stuck uh, for the word algorithms. Finally, uh, as I said, the hero of the evening, uh, the father of computing, Alan Turing. Uh, he had a, lived a very short life with a very tragic end. Uh, uh, it's amazing what he did in this, uh, in this period, and I'll just highlight a few things. The main, main uh, focus for us today will be this paper that he wrote in 1936 on computable numbers with application to Ernst Scheindung's problem. I'll tell you what, what this is. Uh, but in this paper, we'll elaborate on that. But in particular, he defined formally what an algorithm is. And by it, and by you know, other things in this wonderful paper, set up the foundations of computer science and of computing. Then the war broke out, and he was uh, recruited to Bletchley Park. I'm sure many of you heard about it, uh, where he, with a, a group of people with uh, mathematics and machines that they built, broke the German code, the Enigma, uh, which was a huge factor in the victory of the Allies over the Germans in World War II. And uh, then uh, he went back to academia and uh, started to implement his ideas from this paper and actually built uh, two of the earliest uh, general purpose 
computers, this ACE and Mark I. And last but not least, he wrote a, a very influential paper in the 50s where he basically lays the foundation of artificial intelligence. Uh, I will not have time to talk about this in the lectures, but that's another fascinating achievement. Uh, okay, so these are <clears throat> the three. So let's go back to algorithms and try to get into a formal definition of an algorithm. So this is in, in all courses that I and my colleagues teach in, uh, you know, in computer science, undergraduate uh, computability course, you have to go through this uh, and uh, you actually let them actually practice uh, you know, with dirty their hands with, uh, with this. You won't have to do it. I have a demo, but... Uh, you have to, I mean, even if we are not, uh, I could have just told you that there is a mathematical definition for an algorithm, but I actually want you to see it. Uh, so I think there is value to it, but we are still not there. I'm telling you first what, how Turing describes in his paper, he arrived at the mathematical definition. So he said we should look at how a human calculates and learns from this how we can uh, tell a machine to calculate, and how to make it formal. So this is an informal description of the addition algorithm, and we know exactly what happened. We, start, we, we write the numbers on some graph paper, so it's organized. Uh, and uh, we start going column by column, add them up. So this is 14, we write 4, we remember 1. And I'm sure that's how many of you hated math, uh, started to hate math. We write this one, so 1 and 4, and this is 13, we write 3. So we go up again, we are done with this column, we go to the next column, write the one here, and again add them up. It's 11, it's again more than 10, so we write it. Bear with me just a few more seconds. Here's the one, and now it's nine, there is no carry. We go to the next column, and uh, here there is no carry, so this is the one, and then we don't, I mean, of course, with our eyes, we see that we are, run, we, we are finished with the input, but sort of mechanically, we would go to the next column and just check that there are no digits there, and then we'd stop. Okay, good. So what, uh, what conclusions does uh, uh, Turing draw from this? He says, so, I mean, we, have, we see uh, this step-by-step -step procedure that tells us how to add, and it sort of evolves an environment, which is this... Uh, lattice in this case uh, of, of uh, cells, so we are, we are changing slowly uh, this environment, and every cell in this environment is something finite, something we can really understand with just one, one look, capture all of it, so every cell holds a symbol that's like one digit. And then we are moving about this uh, environment as we are changing it, and uh, again, our focus, uh, we are myopic. We, we look just at one uh, square at a time, and we can read or write uh, into it, but we remember only a fixed amount of information as we move about. And then we should have instructions of how to move about. And one important thing is that, again, I'll stress it, that the algorithm, the description of this procedure is a finite amount of information describing how to move and what to write. And this finite amount is supposed to handle for us all infinitely many possible inputs. So now I want to show you the, the actual formal thing. So I, let's see if I can do it. something that 
I've never done before. This is a, my first use of Java. Not that I wrote it, but... Uh, okay, so this is a Turing machine. So Turing said to himself, I want to, you know, to make it formal. Let's simplify it as much as we can. Okay, so what can we simplify? First of all, the environment. Let's make it just one-dimensional. So the head, the center of activity, can move just left and right. Okay? And then every cell, like before, can contain just one of a small number of symbols. Uh, so the number of symbols, the symbols you see here, it can be, we can have zero or one, or this, uh, I don't see from here. This is a blank. Uh, anyway, there are a few symbols uh, that are allowed to be written here. I think he allows also X and Y in this Java program, but maybe six symbols can be, uh, can be in a cell, one of six symbols. Uh, the head uh, will move left and right and will have a state. This is uh, what it remembers. It's again one of a few. If you look at uh, this table, let's see, there are, there are ten, there are just ten states. The left column is the state. So there are ten states. And that's all that uh, this is. And now this table that you see contains all the information about the working of the program. You can go to any uh, to any row, this is the red thing, and just see what is an instruction in this Turing machine. It says if you are at state two, if your state is two, if you see a zero, if you see a zero, then here's what you should do. You should write X in this cell. You should move your head to the right and switch the state to state six. And the important thing about, so it's a completely formal. There are no words like before, you know, go to another column and what is a column and so on. It's completely formal. It's just symbols, numbers in this table, and it's a complete description of this automaton. And uh, let me uh, do a, an addition here. If I don't know what, something simple. One, one. I don't know, seven plus uh, three in binary, okay? And we should start, I think, at the zero state. Oops. Okay, so we are in zero state. We see a one underneath. We, we look at the table. It tells us what to do if we are in the zero state. Zero state, we read the zero. Then we should write a blank, move left, and move to state one. See? We see one, aha, uh -huh. okay, so we should do something right blank, go left and move to state three. Okay, let's see, well it will do what it should, do one step, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And then believe me, it uh, will do the same, I mean, I think it's understandable, so it will just march through this busy beaver, will just run through this beautiful applet. And uh, what is uh, seven plus three? 10, yeah, that's what it is in binary, so it did it correctly, and it will do it for any numbers of any length, okay? So now we'll just analyze the picture we've seen and just try to start drawing conclusions the same way that uh, uh, Turing did. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about this, uh, this wonderful paper. Uh, so... 
this paper, there's such a wealth of ideas there and so powerful, it's, it's just remarkable. So he's defining what is computation, he's defining the algorithm as the, the, the object that is the only object that does computation. What can be done by a Turing machine is computation for Turing, and we'll discuss it. Um, he talks about the duality of program and input. I'll explain about universality. I'll explain again and why, why it was so important for computer industry, computer revolution. He discusses the power of this uh, formalism, the Turing machine, and further shows limits on computation. So let's talk about each of them in turn. Um, so we have the definition, an algorithm is just this table on, of instruction for such an automaton. That's, that's an algorithm. And it must, every Turing machine uh, must halt on every possible input, of course with the correct answer. Uh, the answer a machine M gives on input X is defined. Uh, that's the name for it, M of X. So that's a function computed by, by such an algorithm. But it's important that uh, you know, the machine you know, always gives an answer, never runs forever. And that's an algorithm. You notice, I, mean, I didn't say it in the beginning, but uh, we, we consider every, you know, everything we consider uh, here. Um, there are other models, but everything we consider here are, are problems that have finite input. Uh, and the input in Turing machine is just a sequence of symbols that was obvious. Uh, but what is, may not have been so obvious is that the program itself, well, it was just this table of symbols, so it's also a sequence of symbols. And this is a remarkable observation. It says that, you know, program and input are just, you know, something in our imagination. Both are worth. We decide whether to give it a meaning of a program or call it data. It's up to us. They are interchangeable. And in particular, that's extremely insightful. A program can be an input to another program. We'll see the power of this. It's coming. Next, Turing goes on to define a universal Turing machine. What is a universal Turing machine? It's just a Turing machine. But if you happen to feed it an input that looks like in two parts, one part is another Turing machine, and the second part is an input to that Turing machine, then what the universal machine would do is compute what M would compute on X. And this is the, well, I think you, you probably know why it's so valuable, because that's the first place that, you know, he realizes and the world realizes that computers can be programmed, that you can build a single hardware platform on which to run, you know, any applications you want. So. What we take for granted today that on this single laptop we can, uh, you know, do spell checks and calculate uh, things and play a game and play music and see a movie and uh, surf the web, right? We are, what we are doing is on the same hardware, which is a they, this one is a universal Turing machine if you didn't realize it. Each one of your computers is one. And it's been, it's running many programs just like Turing was running these programs on his universal machine. So this idea was the same in Turing's time, that's the, I guess the eighth computer that Turing built. It was a computer that uh, was designed to run various programs. Up to that point, every computing machine that was built, and there were many, people did build computing machines of various sort, were 
special purpose. They were designed to do a particular function. This is the first general purpose one. So that's an extremely powerful idea. And this is, a, this is really the idea that uh, made, made computers possible. And I want to stress uh, this is something that may, may not be, uh, you know, maybe you don't think about it. All of the theory for constructing computers existed before computers, so, I mean, in this sense. The, and, and moreover, it didn't change much in these 70 years of existence. The way we build computers today is still following, essentially, uh, Turing von Neumann's uh, paradigm for it. Okay, so this is universality, and we are not done. So we are already got the computer revolution, and that's not the end of Turing's discovery in this paper. Here's uh, some more. So what is this uh, ridiculous thing that this stupid automaton can do everything? I mean, it looks like a, a very, you know, bold statement. So let me put this statement in writing so you'll see what it says. That's what Turing said, and that's what at the same time Alonzo Church, who was a professor here, a logician, uh, said in almost the same words. Um, Every function computable by any reasonable device is computable by a Turing machine. Okay, that's known as a Church-Turing thesis. So, again, the statement is that any computation that is done by anything, by nature, by the human mind, by whatever you want, is doable on this, by such, you know, simple, stupid automaton. Okay. Now, uh, I don't know how bold you think it is, how true you think it is. Of course, not a theorem, it's a physics. It's a belief about the state of the world. But it's a fact that it's been standing there for 70 years untouched. In particular, it means that, uh, you know, all the you know, programming languages and all the fancy computers that you are familiar with can all be simulated maybe a little more slowly by uh, a Turing machine. And similarly, every natural process so every function that's computed by an electrical circuit or by the you know, cells in the body or by the brain, it can be simulated by a Turing machine. So you are welcome to challenge it. It's still standing. Uh, so that's another part of the paper. Uh, and finally, last sort of again, last but not least, uh, now, if you believe the thesis, you know, it seems like, you know, computation, in particular this Turing machine that can do all of computation, can do anything. And maybe it was not uh, this way in, in Turing's time, but uh, today I think people will uh, sort of will justifiably wonder whether there is any limit to what computers can do. I mean, they can they do this wonderful uh, web stuff or land, uh, you know, the rover on Mars or... or uh, enable a robot to walk up and down stairs and do other things and uh, you know, do this music and do tomography and beat the world champion in chess. And, you know, what, what, what is there that computers cannot do? Okay, so that's uh, the next thing that uh, Turing tackles. And, in fact, one of the motivations for his paper was ex exactly to tackle, to tackle this question. And in... This Enchandun's problem is a problem about a particular problem in mathematics that uh, uh, well, it's here. 
It's about uh, this problem that Hilbert asked. He asked whether, is there an automatic procedure that, given any mathematical statement, will decide whether it's provable or not in a particular proof system. Um, that's, the, that's the statement, that's the task that Turing proved impossible. Now, you know, I mean, probably uh, see first, uh, well, we saw the value of this, uh, this formalism, the Turing machine, but now you see it more clearly. If you want to prove that there is no mechanical procedure to do something, either this problem or some, any other problem, the first thing you have to do is to have a mathematical definition for it. I mean, otherwise, how would you rule it out? To rule out the existence of an object, you must have a very clear definition of what is allowed in this space of objects. So once Turing had the definition of a Turing machine, he was able to take it and very cleverly, in fact, uh, prove that, uh, that there is no machine, no algorithm that will always solve this problem. And the way he does it is actually, he says, uh, I'll actually prove something else. Let me prove that something else is impossible. So instead of a basic math statement, a basic math conundrum, he's looking at a sort of a computer science conundrum, a problem that, of course, computers didn't exist. But today you would think about it as a natural problem facing any programmer. I wrote a program. Is it correct? What can be more basic than that? Well, the best thing would, would be if there was an algorithm to check that there are no bugs in the program. And what Turing proves in this paper is that there is no algorithm to do this problem either. And for this, oops, okay, yeah, I guess I have it. Uh, I have it here. So I want to, uh, to just demonstrate sort of more clearly what is the uh, input to such, a, to such an algorithm. So. An algorithm should get a computer program and decide, for example, whether it always terminates, whether it always halts. So a particular bug would be a bug that causes a program to run forever on some input. So here's a, a program that you might get. Let me go through this because it's sort of interesting mathematically. Uh, this is a very short program. You just want to check that it's correct, that it never runs forever. So this problem takes as input an integer, x. If, it, if the integer is 1, it holds. If it's even, it divides it by 2 and goes back to 1. If it's odd, it multiplies by 3 at 1 and goes back to the beginning. So it generates sequences of integers. Let's just see. For example, if you start by, with 8, 8 is even, you divide by 2. It's 4, divide by 2 again. It's even still, then you get 1 and you hold. So if you start with 8, this program P0 will hold. Let's see what happens if you start with 6. It's even, you divide by 2, but then it's odd, so you do this step. Multiply by 3, add 1, you get 10, it's even. Then 5, it's odd, you jump up, and then down all the way to 1. So again, you hold. So the question is whether this program will hold for every integer, for any input integer. Well, we don't know. There is an answer to this. I mean, it's yes or no. <laughs> we don't know what it is. 
mathematics was not able to solve it yet, and believe me, there is very good reason to know what is the answer for. It's, it's a very interesting mathematically uh, problem, whether this holds for all inputs or not. But uh, I'll not talk about this. What Turing proved is that there is no algorithm that would solve such problems for every input program. Okay? So no algorithm can tell whether a program will run forever or not. And in this proof, again, he needs the formalism. He needs these ideas of duality and universality. And in particular, he needs to feed machines with the descriptions of themselves. That's essential in the proof. So having this formalism and having the idea that the program is just a string of symbols which can be data to another problem is essential for the proof. Okay. Uh, so we've seen that, I mean, since then, many, many other basic tasks of mathematics and uh, of computer science, in particular the ones I showed you, or for example, whether a given equation has integer solutions, were shown to be insolvable, uncomputable. There are no algorithms that would do them. So in some basic sense, we cannot completely understand, you know, equations or provable statements or correct programs. It just cannot in this sense. Of course, this didn't stop science. It didn't stop, I mean, mathematics or uh, computer science. It just tells you you have to limit your horizons. Maybe you have to consider some particular families of equations or some particular theories, etc., etc. So this is in, in uh, computer science and mathematics. What about sciences? So let's see. Very good. So we started. I have about 10 minutes, and that will be enough. So I just want to talk briefly about algorithms in nature. Uh, uh, we talked about algorithms in mathematics. So let's go back to this. Uh, well, I'm sure you know this book. Uh, um, so we saw that computation was a evolution of an environment via some repeated application of, of simple local rules. And it worked well for the algorithm for addition. And in fact, it, if you think about it, almost all physical and biological theories, you know, are happy with that. I mean, if you think whether about the, you know, metabolism or weather or, uh, you know, magnets or whatever, uh, and the physical laws describing them, they are telling us what is happening on a small scale and how uh, things evolve with local interaction. And maybe the only difference to the Turing machine is that uh, in, in nature, things happen all together at once rather than you know, one step at a time in different areas. So these laws are usually applied simultaneously across uh, space. And this brought uh, John von Neumann. I didn't uh, write his CV. It would be another, again, another lecture. Uh, an amazing, uh, amazingly industrious uh, mathematician with influence almost in every possible field of, of mathematics, uh, let alone his uh, construction of one of the first uh, computers here at the Institute for Advanced Study. So. He invented this uh, model, which in some sense is a parallel version of a Turing machine. And let me describe it to you because it's fun. Uh, here, uh, 
and again there is an environment of, of cells and uh, uh, endowed with a neighborhood structure. So rather than a head moving about, every cell simply looks at its neighbors and decides what to do. And this is done simultaneously across space. Every cell can be in uh, one of few configurations, in this case either green or yellow. Uh, it can represent whatever you like. It can be temperature and uh, it can be, you know, proteins in a cell or whatever it is. Uh, or whether there is a live or dead uh, virus there. Um, and there is an update rule that decides for every cell looking at its neighborhood. So here is a neighborhood of a cell in, in this example, it's just the nine squares containing, you know, around you, including yourself. Looks at the uh, things around him, decides what to do. So here for simplicity, I chose one rule that's easy to evaluate. It's a majority rule. If more uh, neighbors uh, are green than yellow in your neighborhood, you become green. If more are yellow, you become yellow. So this particular cell in the next step will remain green because nine of them are green. If we look at this cell, then, well, six of its neighbors are green, so it will remain green. But if we look at this cell, it has five yellow neighbors, so it will become yellow in the next step. Okay, so here's a, just an example of an evolution here. Uh, if we start with this uh, population, so we saw that after one step, these corner things will become yellow, and then now, of course, you see this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy have more yellow than green neighbors, so they will die, and then this guy will die. Well, if we think of it as uh, yellow is death and <laughs> green is life, then, then they die. But uh, let me remind you the uh, example we talked about in the beginning where uh, we talked about epidemics and uh, the basic question of given a, a population, an instantiation of a, a population. And suppose we know completely the physical laws governing this process, this epidemic. So here is the majority rule. Given a population, can we tell if it will die or will spread? So that's a basic question. And it's a basic question that's even more interesting if we replace majority by some other local rule that's probably more relevant to uh, epidemics, let's say. Okay, so that's a basic scientific question. And uh, in fact, we'll see. Okay, so let's see. So here are these, these titles. This, uh, this view, this computational, algorithmic computational view uh, of the Turing machine of von Neumann uh, so our automata gives us a sort of a new insight into these uh, questions and into these uh, mysterious uh, things we don't understand. So the basic thing here in this green box is that cellular automata and Turing machines are equivalent. So as if you choose your rule correctly. So in particular, some of you may be familiar with the Conway's Game of Life. If you are not, go to the internet, Google Game of Life, and you'll see wonderful simulations. It's a particular rule, it's not the majority rule, it's another very simple rule, very similar to majority, but it's much more powerful in the sense that it can simulate a universal Turing machine. So, again, this model can simulate Turing machine, and therefore, uh, we can immediately conclude that, I mean, just like we cannot tell if a program will halt, we cannot tell if a I mean, it's a simple reduction. It's a simple step to show from Turing's result 
that with appropriate rules, even if you know them, you can never tell, you, there is no algorithm that will tell whether a given population will die or spread, and will do it consistently. So there are basic questions in science that we cannot uh, understand. Here's another uh, interesting fact. Uh, von Neumann was very interested in, uh, well, in artificial life, and in particular in the, in the ability of such machines to self-reproduce. And uh, it turns out that you can build a cellular automaton where you can design a rule where if you pick a particular configuration, let it evolve after a few steps, you'll see this configuration and another one like it. And then it will repeat. So, there is, so is there life there? And here is the going back to the beginning. Well, I mean, because it's a Turing machine, it can definitely compute anything that's computable. We said in particular, it can list the prime numbers. And it's not a big deal uh, to see that termites have a brain much larger than what's needed to just describe, to, to implement the rule of uh, cellular automaton. Even the cellular automaton that lists the prime numbers. So you need probably just a, a thousand neurons rather than 10,000 or 100,000, which they have. So. You shouldn't be that surprised if uh, you found a mound with the <laughs> prime numbers. I would even be willing to bet that at some point in the four billion years of history, there were termites that could do that. Only I don't think it gave them very strong evolutionary advantage. <laughs> <laughs> and they just died. There are this model can not only rule out things, it can explain things. And I just give you a simple example uh, that occurs in nature in lots of places, this synchrony and self-stabilization. Uh, you see fireflies that somehow blink in synchrony. Uh, of course, we, we know lots of rhythmical uh, uh, um, sort of uh, parts of our body that are supposed to, to act in rhythm for, uh, you know, for us to be alive and uh, neurons in the brain and so on. And again, uh, it may seem very mysterious and uh, maybe seems to require a sophisticated design, but very simple cellular automaton uh, can do this. This is a programming challenge that I leave to you. It requires something like 10 states. You should design, and design a termite that uh, would do the following rule that would do the following. Uh, it's, uh, you, you design the termite in such a way that's your task. Uh, maybe with 10 states, uh, termites can talk to their neighbors, those guys to the left and to the right. And they should be designed in such a way that if you kick any of them, that's very asynchronous, right? You, you kick this guy and you don't tell the others about it. Okay, and there are arbitrarily many others, but after you kick it, you know, it starts talking to its neighbors, and there are just a finite number of states in this business. Uh, you know, they all start moving together. So you can, you can achieve synchronization with very few states and with very simple communication primitive. And in fact, many natural phenomena are explained by, by such simple algorithms. And algorithms can generate other things. Uh, so just to summarize, uh, I mean, we've seen lots of things. Uh, I want to stress that computation is, uh, you know, apparent in 
almost any evolving phenomena that we see. And uh, we have a model that's accepted by everybody as the model that captures computation. It's a formal mathematical model that is the algorithm, the Turing machine. And uh, I told you a little about the value of having such a mathematical model, both for the computer revolution and for the limits that we, we can uh, uh, get from understanding it on some of the things we would have liked to achieve in both mathematics and natural sciences. Um, thank you. All the processes you described are deterministic. What about introducing some randomness into it? You want to come tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, even tomorrow I will have uh, very little time to talk about this, but uh, uh, publicity computation is uh, essential to, to, well, at least essential, but it's well studied in. Uh, the theory of computing, and it seems to be apparent in natural processes. There are lots of processes, uh, even forgetting quantum mechanics, which seem to generate uh, such phenomena. I mean, it seems that there are lots of uh, natural phenomena which are at least unpredictable and therefore look random. And weather is a good example, but uh, radioactive decay or uh, other processes. So definitely we, like, we, we want to understand processes which, have, which seem to exhibit randomness. And on the other hand, computer science uh, does study probabilistic algorithms, namely algorithms to solve problems, maybe not the addition of numbers, but other more complex problems like determining whether a number is prime via the use of randomness. So it's, it's a huge field. I'll mention it maybe in one slide tomorrow, so it's not like... <laughs> Uh, will solve your problem, but it's an essential uh, part of the of the theory of computation. Yes. Uh, yeah. So yes. Um, <coughs> hi. Uh, first, you described the Turing machine, and basically said, "Well, you know, any computation can be performed there." As a mathematician, that's very nice, but uh, on a practical level, I'm wondering, like. Well, it may perform all the computations, but is it actually uh, an efficient platform to perform the computations that I want to perform as, as a scientist? And later, when you describe the von Neumann machine, right, it seems like, well, that's the platform I would like to use for my computations. But somehow, I believe that you, the computers I use now are based more like a Turing-type machine rather than von Neumann. So I guess the question I don't really know, is there a reason why they are not building von Neumann-type computers. It's difficult to program, or what's the, what's the hold-up there? Thanks. Okay, so uh, first, there, there are actually two parts to this question, and uh, uh, the, the question about efficiency, there, there are two questions, one about efficient computation and the other about the, the model, whether it's sequential or parallel, and both are important. Uh, the, all of tomorrow's talk is devoted to efficient computation, and this question of even the basic Church-Turing thesis uh, withstand uh, when, when you introduce the word efficient into it. 
uh, it stands. So whether the Turing machine can efficiently simulate any natural process. Uh, it can simulate efficiently when we define efficient appropriately. It can simulate the von Neumann machine. But uh, there are other things that maybe it cannot, like quantum, uh, quantum phenomena, for example. Uh, about uh, the difference between the sequential and parallel models or platforms, uh, people do implement uh, parallel computers, things in which, uh, you know, um, models in which computation happens at the same time in many places. In fact, you are using such computers all the time. Even they, all the Intel chips are doing things in parallel, uh, and uh, their, their general purpose parallel computers and their systems, distributed systems in which different parts are working uh, in parallel on the same problem and sort of collecting, uh, exchanging information about their progress and so on. So they, they are built. Uh, they are, maybe they are not uh, so commercially successful because, uh, at least general purpose ones, because, uh, well, I guess they are too costly for what they they do, and uh, on the other hand, the speed of individual processors is at least still uh, rising so quickly that uh, there was a period in the 80s, uh, maybe you don't remember it because you were interested in other things, and, uh, <laughs> where, where parallel computing was, uh, was a big industrial field, and uh, it seemed to, yeah, it went up and then died again, so. Um, you can duck this one if, if you want. Um, a number of years ago, Steve uh, Wolfram wrote a book, A New Kind of Science. Now, I have the book, and I've read 150 pages. That's actually more than anybody I've met uh, who, who owns the book has read. But, but um, I gather in that he was addressing sort of relating physical processes to computation and focusing on cellular um, automata, in particular uh, one-dimensional cellular Automata, and I was wondering what at the time there was a lot of flurry of interest, and I gather something was or new was or wasn't broken into at that point. So my question is, what sort of came of that, or what um, what is what area did that end up in? Yeah, very good. So if you didn't hear, it's about the Wolfram book, uh, uh, a new kind of science, in which one of the things he does is propagate exactly the view that I try to propagate here of the algorithm as a central language for understanding nature, uh, with which I completely agree. Uh, what, I don't know how many other people have seen this book or have read parts of it. Uh, you read more than me. <laughs> Although there is a website with reviews of the book of people who read all of it. I'll, I'll tell you my, uh, my basic... Uh, uh, reaction, I would not dodge it. Uh, the main thing that bothered me about this book is uh, it seems like uh, Steve Wolfram came up with it by himself then. Whereas this understanding, which is very important to propagate, existed for many years in, the, in our field, for example. Uh, and uh, well, it still exists, and we, as I said, we believe in it, and we like to propagate it. So I don't think, it didn't seem like big news to me. And by the way, there are other parts of the book which are also nice because they describe just physics, and uh, you can learn physics from it. Uh, and other parts which describe these experiments with some cellular automata and the 
beautiful formations they generate, which is also nice, although there's not too much science there. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I didn't mention it here because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing special the way I view things. I find uh, very offensive the fact that he, in a thousand-page book, doesn't reference any work in, in the area of computing where he you know, could have. But, uh, yeah. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Ed. Quite a few people argue on the basis of the results on the limits of computation that um, human intelligence uh, cannot be computational because somehow or other we have insight that no computer would have. Is In, in your opinion, is, is there anything that makes any sense whatsoever in these uh, writings? No. <laughs> No, but those of you who want to read, I mean, so Penrose was one of the main propagators of this, uh, but others also, and uh, uh, I, I find it quite futile, but if you want the logical errors in these particular arguments, you can find them in other, you, you can just Google for them, if you want the particular flaws in Penrose's books, for example. But uh, I don't see any reason to think that, and I don't think that anybody uh, came up with a solid argument for this. Yeah. So you've emphasized digital computation with discrete sets of, of objects. For 300 years from Newton on, a lot of mathematics and physics has been continuous. And you know, there's a huge theory of differential equations, continuum ideas. And of course, some of the first computers were analog computers. And even von Neumann, in his final book that was published after his death uh, on, on the brain, in addition to emphasizing noise, he also talked about analog computation. And there seems to be evidence that some neural phenomena are based on, on, on um, continuous values rather than discrete spikes. So, I mean, are you interested at all in the theory of analog computation, or how do you see digital computation relating to this long tradition of thinking about the universe as in terms of real numbers, for example, and continuous fields. Right. So I, uh, I'm, I think it's, it's, a very serious, uh, it's a very serious issue. Uh, mathematics has benefited tremendously from uh, the continuum, uh, from the real numbers on. Uh, and uh, lots of things become simpler when you model them Continuously, even discrete phenomena, like you know, phenomena in economics, which certainly talk about people, become you know very powerful when you look at it uh, uh, continuously. So it's a very so continuous mathematics. I find is an extremely valuable uh, way to model uh, whatever you like, even discrete phenomena. Uh, moreover, the, there is a theory of uh, continuous computing. And uh, models were suggested by uh, Smale and others. Collaborators are very interesting books about them. And there is a parallel theory to the theory, for example, I'll describe tomorrow, complexity theory for real-valued computation. So this issue is certainly not ignored by the theory of computation. Uh, my personal interests are mainly in finite computers. That's what I understand better, the combinatorial side. And further, I think that at the end, the universe is finite, 
even though we have very good uh, continuous models for it. It's, uh, it's finite, so at the end, analog computers are fi discrete and the brain is discrete. You know, it's, it's uh, debatable, but uh, uh, that's what I think. But anyway, continuous mathematics and continuous computing, and in particular, when you, like, uh, uh, you know well, I mean, the, the, the computation that's done in simulating uh, uh, algebra or differential equations with real numbers, uh, the kind of issues that come up with errors, uh, numerical errors, and making them numerical stab numerically stable are very important issues in the theory of computation and in the practice of computation. This is related to the last question. Might there not be physical systems that embody uncomputable functions under a natural encoding, like three-body systems? This has been claimed by physicists. I think that there are. I think that uh, I think that there are uh, analogs to Turing's result. I, I cannot quote for you a particular one, but uh, I think that there are uh, in the model of real computation that there are uncomputable uh, functions, uncomputable functions on the real. Yes, I definitely know that in the uh, computational uh, restriction of this, there are, there are analogs to NP-completeness in the in the real uh, in the real model. So certainly there. Are. Yeah. Okay, so tomorrow, same time, same place. Thank you.